Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Turn with me your Bibles to John chapter 2, and if you can, please stand when you get that. John chapter 2. We're going to stop at verse 7, but I want to read all 11 verses for the sake of context. John 2. The Bible says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. Father, we thank you just for the wonderful time of worship and fellowship we have had today. Feeling like we have actually entered into your presence. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, now take your word, Father. Let us learn of you and let us apply our lives to what your word says. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. In every wedding ceremony, there seems to be at least one mistake. I read about such a wedding this week. A young couple very much in love were getting married. Marilyn, the wife-to-be, was very nervous, though, about the big occasion. And so the pastor chose a scripture that he felt would be a great encouragement to her. The verse was 1 John 4.18, which says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Thinking this would help, the pastor asked the best man to read it during the ceremony. The problem was the best man wasn't very familiar with the Bible, and didn't know the difference between 1 John and the Gospel of John. The time came for him to read the verse. He introduced his reading by saying the pastor felt this was a very fitting verse for Marilyn. But instead of reading 1 John 4.18, he read John 4.18, which says, You have five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Things sometimes go very wrong at weddings. And at one particular wedding in the Bible, we're going to read of a terrible problem that occurred. 
Now the most depicted and well-known miracles of Jesus are his turning water into wine, his commanding the wind and the waves, and his walking upon the water. There are 36 recorded miracles, and those three are recorded the most. But the water-to-wine miracle has the Gospel of John is unique in this, as it is the only one that records this. This is a creation miracle. Jesus takes what doesn't exist, and he brings it into existence. Now John will, will present seven signs of who Christ is. The first one is a creation miracle that begins his ministry in John 2, which is also where God began his ministry. In Genesis, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and displayed his glory. In John chapter 2, Jesus will create, as in verse, and in verse 11 will say, it will also display his glory, like father, like son. Look at verse 1 with me. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now the third day means three days after the calling of Nathanael. The occasion of the miracle was a village wedding to which Mary and Jesus had both been invited. I find it fascinating that the earthly ministry of Jesus will begin at a wedding and the culmination of all human history will also be a wedding. That both she and Jesus attend to suggest the wedding involved relatives or friends of the family. That would seem to explain why Mary seems to be more than just a guest, but apparently had some responsibility for helping the groom's family at the celebration. For example, she was aware of the situation regarding the lack of wine and took the initiative to solve the problem. It's also interesting, I think, to notice that the Lord Jesus wasn't a recluse, as was John the Baptist. He accepted invitations to social events, even though his enemies used this practice to accuse him. Jesus even said of himself in Matthew 11:19, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look! a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so we see that Jesus entered into the normal experiences of life, but then he sanctified them by his presence, even something as mundane as a village wedding. Listen, Jesus knows the details of our lives better than we do. When you read the Gospels, you see a man who got angry at prejudice, who wept at funerals, who eased fears, and who cared about the downhearted. Don't think for a moment that Jesus doesn't care about even the most minute details of your life. He's the all-knowing, all-wise God. 1 Peter 5-7 reminds us that we should be casting all of our care upon him because he cares for us. Now, in Jesus' day, weddings were huge. They just didn't have a lot to do back then. Netflix wasn't even invented. But back then it wasn't a Saturday thing where you show up for an hour and then spend a couple hours at a reception and you're all done. In Bible days, Jewish wedding celebrations lasted up to one week. It was sort of a honeymoon, family reunion, bachelor party, wedding shower all rolled up into one. And so to take care of so many people, careful preparations 
would have had to been made. To run out of food and drink was more than just embarrassing. It was a social disaster. And evidently, a lot more people showed up at this wedding than the groom was expecting. The seven-day celebration may have been halfway through when word came to the groom, they have run out of wine. That's worse than us running out of coffee on Sunday mornings. Now today, if you run out of wine or potato chips or just about anything else, it's no sweat. You just put your pajamas on and you go to Walmart. (laughs) By the way, if your TV ever goes on the fritz and you need some entertainment, just drive to Walmart, park near the entrance, open a bag of Cheetos and a Coke, and just watch people come in and out of Walmart. You will leave that place feeling a lot better about yourself. The circus has less costumes. I've just saved you people a bunch of money on therapy. But anyway, the problem in our Texas Canaan was so small that Walmart hadn't even opened a store yet. Now we need to realize that wine was a staple drink in the ancient Near East. In fact, they often drank more wine than water as it kept longer because reliable and safe water sources were sometimes hard to come by, especially in the summer months. Wine was so much a part of Jewish life that there was a common saying that said, without wine, there is no joy. So due to the warm climate and the lack of any means of refrigeration or purification, fruit juice would often ferment. And the result was an alcoholic beverage with the capability of inducing drunkenness. And to help avoid the risk of inebriation, wine was commonly diluted with water to one-third to one-tenth of its strength, which I will get into more next week. The fact that the wine did run out would suggest the family in our text was very poor and was unable to fully fund the wedding. The servants may well have been volunteers, but it would make their shame clear to all. If their means were very limited, this could very easily happen as the feasting during a wedding celebration was not restricted to just close relatives. And there would be many friends and acquaintances there, not to mention some of the strangers who would take advantage of what was to offer. So outwardly, this is just Mary consulting Jesus about whether anything can be done. But I see this as a picture of the world. The world indeed has religious ceremony galore, but it lacks that which floods the heart with joy. It lacks the wine that truly satisfies. The world has no wine in that sense. In the hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, are some of my favorite lyrics. One of them is, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Isn't that a picture of the lost world today? They are tasting the world's pleasures, but finding no personal satisfaction, and what fulfillment they do do have eventually runs out. It's kind of like eating cotton candy. It may taste sweet at the moment, but lacks the ability to satisfy our hunger. The Bible invites us to come to Christ for salvation and lasting satisfaction. They have no wine. This was also the estate of Israel during this time. They have no wine. 
To have no wine in Israel means that God did not visit the nation with the latter rain. This normally would occur when the nation was under God's judgment. And this was the nation that Christ came to. They had no wine. They were under judgment and they are without joy. Since 586 B.C. they had been in bondage to Babylon, Persia, Greece, and at this very moment they are under the yoke of Rome. And so rightly it was said, they have no wine. The wine that ran out could also be said to represent the law, which had a spiritual basis, but lacked the power to save. It ran out before the job was done. And though it was good, it could not compare to the new wine, the law of life and spirit in Christ Jesus. Now we do know that in Scripture, wine often relates to joy. So in a way, we could see Mary telling Jesus, they have run out of joy and they need your input. Verse 4, please. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now the word woman seems a little harsh, doesn't it? I don't know what your mother was like. But I never called my mother woman. I would have been afraid to go to sleep at night. Listen, I may have been mean little Billy, but I wasn't crazy little Billy. You guys did that to me. <laughs> the Greek word for woman is gene. It's not a derogatory term, nor should we assume that Jesus meant it to be. And although in English Jesus' term of addressing her as woman seems harsh and abrupt, it was in fact a very common term. It's the same form of address he will use at the woman at the well and the woman taken in adultery and with Mary Magdalene at the tomb. It's also the same form of address he used from the cross to commend his mother and to John's care. When he said, woman, behold your son. There is no harshness in his voice in any of those occasions. A modern way of Jesus saying this would be, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? But he's not speaking primarily about concern for his mother. I think he's actually speaking more about his concern for his father. Basically, I think he's saying... I have a mission to complete, and my purpose is not to become Galilee's chief wine distributor. Jesus seems to be reminding Mary that he is controlled by obedience to the Father and not just by human relationships. His hour is coming, but it is an hour determined by his Father. And why did he say, my time has not yet come? There's only one adequate explanation, I think. Jesus is now filled with a messianic consciousness. He knows who he is now. He knows why he's coming to the world, but he will reveal himself in his own time and in his own way. His destiny is not controlled by human relationships, but by his divine appointment with death. Indeed, his hour is coming, but it has not yet arrived. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, My hour is not yet come. But when you come to the 17th chapter in the first verse, it says, The Lord, the night before the cross, lifts his face towards heaven and says, Father, the hour has now come. Now I'm tracking with Jesus up to this point, but when he says, My hour has not yet come, it seems a little baffling in the text because somehow it appears that Jesus somehow understands that Mary is asking him for more than just supplying wine for this wedding. Now, just like last week, this is just conjecture. 
But we wonder, why would Mary want Jesus to manifest himself as the Messiah? This is just a theory. So you can go home and noodle it and reject it or accept it. But at this point, Mary is in her mid-40s. Mary paid an enormous price all of her born days to be the woman chosen by God to bring the Messiah into the world by virgin birth. This was in order to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. She is blessed among, men, among women in the mind of Christians today, but she did not have that reputation during her time on earth. It is my personal conviction that Mary is more interested than simply the provision of wine. Is it possible she was seeking a restoration of her reputation? Now, why would I say that? You see, as a young woman of maybe even 14 to 15 years of age, Mary had become miraculously pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Yes, she was highly favored among women, but she also must have been the subject of speculation and slander. In defending their own righteousness in John 8:41, the Pharisees smugly declared to Jesus, we are not born of fornication. The implication being that Jesus had been. For 30 years, Mary has lived with the knowledge that her character has been unjustly maligned. Is it not at least possible that she looked at her son not only for wine, but also for vindication? Thinking if people could see who he really was, perhaps they were at last see the truth about her as well. Once again, just conjecture, but something to consider. Verse 5, please. His mother said to his servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. The interesting thing to note here is these are Mary's last recorded words in Scripture. What well, wonderfully fantastic words to have as your last recorded words. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. If you want to have a life that is pleasing to God and fulfilling to you, this is the formula. Whatever he says to you, do it. I find it theologically significant that in these, her last recorded words in Scripture, we see Mary directing the servants to her son rather than acting as a mediator or a liaison for him. Now those who believe that you have to go through Mary to have your prayers heard or to gain influence in heaven have not carefully studied the relationship between Mary and Jesus. Quite frankly, she didn't carry a whole lot of weight with him. Oh, he loved her, and he even cared for her from the cross. But he was not influenced by her, nor did he take orders from her. Later on in the Gospels, where it was told that his mother wanted to see him, Jesus said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Those who hear and heed the word of God are my mother and my brothers. Later in Acts 1, we see Mary praying with the other disciples in the upper room. She's not leading the meeting. She's not even in a place of prominence. She's just one of them. There is one mediator between God and man, and it's not Mary, but the man Christ Jesus. Her first words of instruction, though, to her servants were, whatever. Now, she had no idea what he might do. Up to this point, he had not performed one single miracle. But even without seeing his miraculous power, Mary was well aware of who he was because she had been told by Gabriel in Luke 1.32, He shall be great and be called the Son of the Highest. She had heard Simeon cry out to God when he beheld the baby Jesus at the temple in Luke 2.30. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. She knew he was God the Son and the Son of God and the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies. And so she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. The implication is, even if what he tells you sounds odd, like serving water for wine, do it anyway. You know, sometimes in the scripture, walking by faith can look pretty strange. Maybe that's why they call it walking by faith. God told Naaman to dip into the dirty Jordan River seven times and he would be cleansed of his leprosy. God told Moses to stand at the Red Sea and hold up his staff and the water would divide and they walked on dry land. God told the people to walk around Jericho six times and be quiet and on the seventh time just sound the instruments and let out a shout and the mighty walls fell down flat. How about us? We may not be called to exhibit the kind of faith that I just read to you, but our faith in Christ can cause us to look pretty strange to the world around us. They think you're crazy because you stay in that marriage even though it's difficult. Or they think you're strange because you don't go to the bar with them after work. Or they notice that when the coarse and vulgar joking begins around the water cooler, you just quietly walk away. Maybe that's what caused Peter to say in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Maybe it's good to remind ourselves from time to time that this world truly is not our home. It, could, it should cause us great joy this morning to realize that we don't fit in down here. Verse 6, please. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now six water pots have been set there for Jewish purification. Now when we get ready to eat, we wash our hands to remove the germs. But the Jews had something deeper in mind. They were not just washing dirt off. It was as if they were also seeking a spiritual cleansing. By ceremonially washing their hands, they would be saying they were separating themselves from the world and dedicating themselves to God. Now Jesus turns to these great stone pots of purification. So keep in mind, whenever guests arrived, the water from these pots would be poured over their hands in cleansing. And to eat with unwashed hands was an act of defilement. The purification, though, was just an external act that did not make anything new or bring any kind of fresh power. I think these stone water pots represent the ritual of Jewish law, the Old Covenant, which really has become meaningless in the presence of Jesus, who will pour out the abundance of the wine of the new age of the Messiah. The time of Judaism is now over. Its major institutions are being replaced by Jesus himself. The old wineskins cannot contain the new wine. The six stone jars could also represent mankind created on the sixth day who through the old covenant were clean only outwardly. The inside of the man was still unclean. But through Christ's atoning death, the wine of his blood could be now applied to their inner lives, 
washing away their sins and trespasses, and now they can become vessels of celebration. The deadness of the Old Testament law was made alive with the wine, with the new covenant that Jesus came to bring. Wine is also a symbol of God's grace that comes into our lives undeserved and transforms us from the inside out. Now there was nothing special about these water pots. They were common stone water pots. But Jesus will use them for his first miracle. And like that, God uses the common things. You don't have to be multi-talented to be used. This also means the common things you do, he can transform. Your next 24 hours, he can transform them for good. Your meager resources, he can transform them and use them. You see, Jesus did not come to give us information. He came to give us transformation. He has a way of taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. The water will not just appear to be wine, it will actually become wine. Our God is in the transformation business. He does not want to rearrange you, He wants to transform you. He doesn't want to make you just a slightly more shinier version than your old self. He wants to make everything completely new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17, Rexella. That was for Junior. You may want to look better on the outside, but he wants to make you new on the inside. And when that transformation takes place on the inside, it will show on the outside. Verse 7. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Why would the Bible record that they filled them up to the brim? I think it was though, so nobody could say there was any human activity in this miracle. We can literally say the miracle was fulfilled by Christ. Now for those of you to seek to serve Jesus to a greater degree, there are three important characteristics of the servants that we should note. The first is obedience. The servants didn't argue with Jesus or ask questions of him. They simply did what he asked them to do. The second is exuberance. The servants filled huge 20-gallon vessels to the brim. Even though they had no idea what would happen next, there was nothing half-hearted about these guys. How I love to see men and women who want to serve the Lord to the brim. The word enthusiasm is entheos, which means full of God. The Lord is not looking for servants who will work lethargically but he looks for those who will work with enthusiasm because they are full of God. There are many Christians that if they serve their employer the way they serve the Lord, well, let's just say promotion wouldn't be on the list. You said there were three things. Yeah, the third one we're going to cover next week, so don't call in sick. In verse 5, Mary said, do whatever Jesus commands you, and they did. In verse 7, Jesus said, fill the water pots, and they did. In verse 8, Jesus will say, take a cup to the governor of the feast, and they will. The miracle took place only when the people obeyed. It's the same for each miracle in John's gospel. Obedience is always required. Now, most of us want to experience the transforming power of Christ in our lives. We want to see his glory. We want to see a change in our lives. 
However, some of the time we are not willing to be obedient to his commands. It just doesn't work that way, my beloved. Obedience is the key. Always has been, always will be. In closing, we are like those stone water pots in verse 7, which we'll see next week. We're filled with more than enough wine to last the entire wedding. The Bible calls us earthen vessels in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where it says, But we have the treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God never gives just enough. He always gives more than enough with plenty left over. If you don't believe me, just look at creation. He didn't create just enough trees. He created more than enough. He didn't create just enough mountains. He created more than enough. He didn't create just enough ocean. He created more than enough. He doesn't give us just enough life and joy. If we serve him, he will give us more than enough. If Jesus can turn water into wine, surely he can turn your sadness into joy, your fear into faith, and your death into life. It's the same thing Jesus did when he fed the multitude. He multiplied five loaves and two fish so that 5,000 men and their families were fed. And when everyone had eaten all that they could stomach, there were still 12 baskets of bread left over. More than enough. He gave them more than they could possibly eat. That's the way God gives. Now Paul experienced this kind of abundant grace when he wrote, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly through unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The Bible says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. He loves to bless those who by the world's standards don't deserve blessing. To a dying thief on a cross, he gives the gift of paradise. To the woman caught in adultery, he gives the gift of God's amazing grace and forgiveness. To a grieving father, he will give his child back from death. To the one who denied him, he will give the keys to the kingdom. This is the God that we serve. And if you don't know him, please see me after service. You are all those things, Lord. And you want to do good things for us. But Lord, I know in my own life, obedience has always been the key. I can be so stubborn and hard-necked. I pray, Father, that you would do a work in my life and in everybody's life within the sound of my voice. That you would make us willing, Lord, to serve you with all of our hearts. We would serve you to the brim in a way that we serve nothing else in our lives. Be with us, Lord, for we truly do need you. In Christ's name, amen.